Would you turn or tap your way to 1 Peter chapter 2? As this morning we kick off our new series called Peculiar. With a uh, new series, there is uh, regularly a new series page, uh, which is at collectivechurch.com slash current series, uh, where we've got resources for the upcoming series, as well as kind of the home base for any practices or kind of rhythms that we're trying to enter into. If I can highlight one just briefly, uh, How to Reach the West Again by Tim Keller. Tim Keller is a pastor, spent his career uh, in ministry in the city of New York City, and now has kind of bringing his big reflections on what does it mean to be the church in our day and age. And so in How to Reach the West Again, uh, this, I don't know, this is like a weird book moment, might be his best yet. So don't quote me on that, but it might be his best yet. I mean, this is a New York Times bestselling author, and this might be his best. And here's some of the reasons why. It is 50 pages long. You can read it in one sitting, and it's a free ebook. You have no excuses. If you're like, man, I'm not a book person, I got one right here for you. 50 pages, and, and, and it has a, uh, a, a complimentary little podcast that goes with it, uh, where he basically talks you through the book. So this is absolutely worth going and getting, so it's free. The link is there at collectivechurch.com slash current series. That's also the home base for, like I said, practices that we'll be updating with over the coming series, as well as other books. Um, I'm going to talk about a few of those in a moment with our teaching today. So you can head there to get that free ebook as well as any other resources. Well, as we begin, Stephen Smith was on the wrong side of history. Stephen Smith, though he was zealous about the movement that he was a part of and gave all of his zeal and energy towards it, he was on the wrong side of history. Stephen Smith, though he surrounded himself with a community of other like-minded individuals, he and they were on the wrong side of history. Stephen Smith, though he gave himself to evangelizing and pulling along others to join the movement, Stephen was on the wrong side of history, even though he was convinced and he would lambast and, and, and make fun of people on the opposite side. At the end of the day, he was on the wrong side of history. Stephen Smith, even though he branded his body for his movement, was on the wrong side of history. The year was 2007, and for a brief moment, Stephen Smith was known as the Zune Tattoo Guy. Now, for those of you... <laughs> that are unfamiliar with the Microsoft Zune, back when there was this little thing called the iPod that was really coming into terms of its own. The 2007 was right around the time the iPhone came out, the first one. And Microsoft offered up its own kind of version of the iPod in the form of the Microsoft Zune. It was short-lived, but their community was strong and they loved uh, it until it was ultimately shuttered a, a few years later. And so Stephen Smith Though zealous, though branding his body, uh, he was on the wrong side. He, the tattoo has now been covered up with, I believe, a Dick Cheney tattoo. So we'll read into that if we will. <laughs> Over the past decade, we have been told, we have seen statistics, we have personally experienced that Western society is becoming an increasingly post-Christian culture. More than two-thirds of American churches have either plateaued or on the decline just back in 2009, 50% of Christians identified as practicing, having some relationship and rhythm to the church and Christianity. And just two years ago, 2020, that number went from 50% to 25. 
Similarly, the group of nuns, that would be agnostic, atheists, or just those who would identify as nothing, they doubled, going from 11% of American to 21%, where now Christian and the nuns are almost equal with 25 and 21 accordingly. Even within this, there is a growing sentiment that while Christianity might have been seen in the past as good or at the very least culturally benign, more increasingly Christianity is seen as dangerous. Christianity is seen as as bad, as an obstacle to progress. Now, even amid the good news that, for instance, collective church, that we are a part of that one-third that is growing, and even amid the good news that is so regularly often offset because of our uh, ethnocentrism, is that the global church is actually booming and thriving. Even in the midst of that, if you're anything like me, you kind of stay awake at night wondering sometimes, in a decade, will I find myself with the spiritual equivalent of a Zoom tattoo? Maybe some of you here right now today feel that already about Christianity. Maybe some of you dragged along by friends and you don't identify as a Christian. You feel that way presently about all of us. We're a bunch of weirdos with Zoom tattoos and we don't realize that the iPod has won and it's just a matter of time. Is the church, is Christianity, is the Orthodox faith, is, is this thing that we're gathering here today, are we on the wrong side of history? These are the sort of questions that keep some of us up at night, especially somebody whose whole job is kind of built along this thing, you know, getting along okay at least. But I believe the invitation for us is rather than hand-wringing and getting into culture wars of getting all upset about what are we going to do to win back and make something a Christian nation, I'm far more focused on what does it mean for us to find not just surviving but thriving in the midst of whatever circumstances we're in. And to do that, I think the decline that we see culturally should lead us, should prompt us to examine what does it mean, what are the rhythms in our relationships to what it means to be Christians, to pray through what what are we being invited into, Holy Spirit, and then to discern a new way forward where we as Christians cannot just survive but thrive. Now, the good news is that there is a way forward that does exist, and it is through what? A moment ago, I talked about Tim Keller's book, How to Reach the West Again, uh, a reinvention through retrieval, as he puts it. Another way of saying this, which you're going to hear me say over and over again today, is we need to look back to look forward. That within the story of the church thus far, there is a framework and a paradigm for how the church can survive and thrive no matter their context. And the problem is that so often we have maybe left many of these things behind. And the hope would be for us to recapture these. If you'll join me in standing, we're going to read from 1 Peter chapter 2. We stand as we read from the scriptures each week as a way of uh, not just honoring the scriptures, but also reminding ourselves that what we're reading here is meant for more than just our minds. We are more than what philosopher James K.A. Smith calls brains on a stick. We are embodied human beings, and what we read here is for all of our bodies, our whole selves. Now today we're going to read the passage twice. A little reason why. The first time we're going to read it will be in the ESV, English Standard Translation of the Greek that was written in. This is what we usually use. The second time we read it is going to be in the 1611 King James Version for reasons that will make sense as we make our way forward today. So you're going to get lots of these and thous in just a moment. But let's do the ESV first, and then uh, we'll read the King James together. So 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 9 says, but you are, speaking of Christians, the church, a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that is the nations, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And now let's hop into our time machine, 1611 King James. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but now are the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dear beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Let's pray for our time together today. Father, uh, first and foremost, we thank you for the good work of Bible translators, uh, that we uh, have uh, not just an ESV, we have a whole collection of, of wonderful, faithful English translations of the scriptures that we are not uh, stuck even with, a, with the difficult work of, of reading something from 1611. And so God, I'm just immediately just grateful uh, for the Bibles that we have uh, with us today. God, we pray, though, that your scriptures would speak as they have uh, for generations, not just to 1611, but here to 2022. Spirit, we ask that you would speak to us today, revive our hearts with a vision of a thriving faith and not just a substance uh, lit faith. God, this hand-to-mouth kind of just surviving faith, but one that thrives in the midst of our world. We pray that you'd give us a vision for that today. In your name we pray. Amen. We'll go ahead and be seated. Well, this series and its main title, the word peculiar, is a peculiar word. See, peculiar, if you're to look up in the dictionary right now, has two primary meanings. The first would be how we normally use the word peculiar, something strange, something odd, something unusual. Seeing my kids running around, you would say, those are peculiar children, right? <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> the second is uh, the use of the word peculiar is to talk about something being particular or something special, something being the possession of someone. So you would look at my kids and say they're peculiar, they're strange and odd. I would look at my kids and say, yes, they are peculiar, they are mine, they belong to me, and that's why they're peculiar to you, because it's mostly my fault that they're weird, strange kids. Now, what's interesting is that second definition of peculiar, meaning the possession of something, was far more common in 1611. And so that's why you might have noticed in the King James, when, when the ESV said, you are a chosen people, the chosen possession, the people of God, the King James back in the 1611 said, you are a peculiar people. It's a way of they're getting at both of those two versions, both of those two definitions of the word peculiar. For them, in 1611, they translated the word uh, uh, peripoesis, what we would translate later as a chosen possession. They go, yes, peculiar, that you are the peculiar people of God. You belong. You are the chosen people of God. Now, this is a peculiar difference that serves as a testament to the way language changes over time. 
that these definitions grow and morph and even the priority of which one over the other. But it's in that strange flip of Christians as a peculiar people in both meanings that the early church, those first Christians, was all too apparent for them. See, for the early Christians, really in the first 300 years, for them to be peculiar, that is the possession of God, was for them to be peculiar, that is strange, to their neighbors. For the first century, this was how Christians understood. We see this even in just what we just read. In verses 9 through 10, what did Peter say? He goes, you are chosen, you are holy, you are the royal people of God, you are holy, and you are called. And right after that, in verses 11 and 12, sojourners and exiles, pilgrims and strangers, spoken of as evildoers, for them to be the peculiar people of God was to be the peculiar people to their neighbors. And they were overlapping In the first century Roman world where Christianity first emerged, they were viewed as different and even more than that, dangerous. If you survey the writings of ancient uh, writers like um, Celsus or Periphery, you're going to hear a lot of these in the coming weeks, these names. If you survey their letters and the way that they talk about Christianity, they refer to it as that strange and perverse superstition. They called Christians silly, stupid, irrational, simple, wicked, dangerous, hateful, obstinate, antisocial, extravagant, perverse, and they even referred to Christians as atheists, specifically because of their refusal to worship the Roman pantheon. They were, they, they, we, were called, we, were, we were atheists. What a weird uh, turn of events here. You see, to become or to be a Christian in the first three centuries was fraught with serious social costs and consequences. Some of you may know the stories of martyrs fed to lions or uh, covered in tar and crucified and then lit on fire to light the Caesar's uh, parties in his backyard. But most of the time, this kind of these social costs were sporadic and localized. It was more common for them to face ridicule, social exclusion, harassment, maybe some physical abuse. The whole point being that throughout the first 300 years, it was evident that the early church, that these people, from the perspective of the Romans, were on the wrong side of history. Yet, as Larry Hurtado, he's a historian who passed away in 2019 in his wonderfully titled book, Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? It's like, it's, it's a wonderful little book title. It's just a simple blue book that just says in big letters, Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? Because for him, what he's acknowledging is these social costs. Why would anybody opt into this Christian faith if this was all that it brought with it? And even as he details in the book is that amid those costs, amid those challenges, the early church didn't just survive, they thrived. And around 33 AD, when the Christian movement really got going, it is estimated the church was somewhere around 1,000 people, largely located in and around Jerusalem. And yet, when we turn the dial to about 300 years, the church, Christians, numbered around 6 million. And this isn't a time where, you know, six million right now is like, that's the new, like, you know, Spider-Man trailer or whatever in like three minutes. But here you have it. In a, in a year without viral, without internet, without telegram, without any of these sites, largely through relationships and communities and discussion, in 300 years, you had this transfer of 1,000 to 6 million. And even more than that, that by 313, Christianity became an accepted religion protected religion within the state, and within a decade then became the state religion with Constantine. And whether or not that was a good thing, that's a conversation for another teaching. 
But I just, I, I bring all this to say is, is there were great costs for the early church of living as a peculiar people. I mean, one of the key issues after Christianity became an accepted religion, what was the, one of the main things that the early church was talking about with these you know, church fathers and mothers? Their conversations were about what to do with lapsed Christians, people that because of the social costs of Christianity walked away from the faith, then when it became legalized, that they then came back and were like, I wanna be on team Jesus again. And they said, well, you, you walked away, so what do we, that was one of the first big conversations that the church fathers and mothers were having at the time of the church becoming one. All of this is to say, there were social costs to the Christian faith. So much so that people didn't come into it, but some did, and some after being there backed out. But even still, six million people within 300 years, this thing was growing and thriving. And so the question is, how might we do the same? How might we tap into that same kind of growth, not just a surviving spirituality, but a thriving faith? Well, we need to look back to look forward. Larry Hurtado, in another one of his wonderfully titled books, Destroyer of the Gods, uh, this one is actually an incredible, uh, pretty approachable history book. It's on the recommended resources page. I'm currently taking applications for anybody that wants to do an impromptu um, little book club with it because it's that good. And so the book, he opens with this kind of question. How did the fled, this little fledgling Jewish sect, you know, somewhere around 1,000 people in the first century, how did they overturn a 1,000-year empire within a couple centuries? How did it come to that now here we, down in history, now we name our dogs after Caesar and Brutus and we name our pets after the royal like demigod kings of the Roman Empire and the gods of Rome are now the subject of, of, movie, of kids' movies. Meanwhile, we name our kids after the martyrs of the early church and the church of Jesus continues to go unfettered. What, what in the world has happened that this turn has happened? It is one of the most mind-boggling things for most historians because the Roman Empire, in many ways, there was, there was a decline in some ways, but not one that would precedate this. It's, it is the big what in the world happened for, the, for most historians, specifically within the Roman Empire. What led to this reversal? What led to this flip? What Larry Hurtado identifies was the key was these early churches' existence as a contrast community to the Roman Empire, as a countercultural social project that emerged out of the beliefs of their faith, one that was simultaneously offensive but also attractive at the same time, as it defied the categories of the ancient world. They just, they, they could, they saw the Christians and they hated them, but they also saw that they were onto something and it caused them to look in. And this is what led to 6 million people over the course of 300 years plus. So what were these practices that destroyed the gods? Larry Hurtado identifies five. I add a sixth because, um, because it, it needs to be there. I don't know why he missed it. Um, <laughs> The peculiar practices of the early church. So these are the big six. A little hint, we're, we're going into six weeks of the series. Uh, these are the peculiar practices of the early church. Uh, the one, first, is they united diverse peoples through a new kind of religious identity. This was a revolution in the Roman world where religion and faith were now not something you were born into, but it was a matter of choice, of you thinking through and making a decision to commit to a faith system. Any of you, that even your ability, some of you that like you've walked away from the Christian faith, maybe you got dragged along here, your ability to do that is because you live in Christianity's home. 
The revolution also of equality among ethnicities and a unity because they were able to find something more fundamental to our humanity than simply our ethnicity. That this was a fundamental uniting moment here of what First Peter called this, this holy nation, this new race. Was, this was astounding to the Roman world that you had here gathered people from different social classes, genders, and ethnicities gathering together as a unified people with slave and free, with Scythian and barbarian, with Gentile and Jew, all sitting together around the table and then uniting with each other in mission. It was offensive because it was upsetting the social order. It was turning over the us versus them order that the society was built on. And so this is why they saw them as antisocial. You guys are undercutting the entire social system of Rome. Second was they were highly committed to hospitality and generosity for the poor and marginalized. This was a revolution of justice within its day because most often in most Roman world, you would care for your own poor at some level, like people in your family or within kind of your group or your household. You would take care of the, them that would maybe... Um, the handicapped at some level, the marginalized, the vulnerable. You would care for those within your own group. And the astounding movement of the church growth was, as one Roman author put it, is they're taking care of our poor faster and better than we can take care of them ourselves. The church had what, what uh, one historian identified as promiscuous generosity. They had limit in a moment, we'll talk about how the fact that they kept their beds, that is their marriage, like their bodies to one another in marriage, but they were promiscuous with their wealth. And it was astounding for the Roman world to see. The third is they were non-retaliatory. They were marked by forgiveness and love for their enemies and opponents. This was a revolution in its day of how power is dealt, of how justice is done, and how influence is wielded. That the way that we win is not by smiting and tearing down our enemies, but forgiveness and love and compassion. Fourth, they were practically and holistically defined by a fighting for the dignity and worth of all humans. This, was, uh, this is the foundation of our Western belief that there is some kind of inalienable human right that we all have, a dignity that you have just because you're human. That is not self-justifying, and it is based on the Christian worldview, that each human being is made in the image and as such is responsible and required for justice and fairness and equality with one another. And so this was the basis for them in their work with infanticide and abortion and exposure. It led to their protest against the gladiator games and even their protest against military war within the Roman Empire. So there was actually this much bigger thing than what some of you, when you would hear that, and you want to locate it to one voting point, more on that in a second, it was actually far more grandiose because it was rooted not in a voting point, but in a way of seeing what it means to be human and who my neighbor is. Fifth, they had a revolutionary sex ethic, a revolution of consent that did not exist in the modern world or in the ancient world and more and more today. What they fought for was not just consent, but what one historian calls super consensual sex. That is, that it was not enough simply just to consent to one activity, but that this belongs within a super consensual, a whole self-consent, which is what we would call marriage. Similarly, they saw that men in particular were more than just slaves to their sexual passions, and so we just kind of let men do whatever they want because they don't really have any control. This was a revolution that saw that, that we are not slaves to our desires and to our lusts, but that we can, we are more than animals, that humans have an ability to control our bodies and ourselves. I'm telling you, revolutionary stuff within the Roman world. And then sixth, Ryan's additional, is that they were resilient through the challenges, trials, exclusion, criticisms, and persecutions they faced. This was a hope that they grabbed onto. This is what changed the world. This was the belief that no matter the persecution that they faced, they believed they were on the right side of history. 
And so these six identify this countercultural social project that marked them as a peculiar people that both offended and attracted Roman world at an incredible rate. We even see this in uh, chapter 2, verse 12 in 1 Peter, what we read a moment ago, when he says that even though they may speak of you as evildoers, they might see your good works and glorify God in heaven. What Peter was talking about was these kinds of things. This is what led to people. Even though they speak about you as evildoers, they will see that this is a better way to live and to commit themselves to it. It was both offensive and attractive. In How to Reach the West Again, the Keller book we talked about a moment ago, he actually reflects on these distinctives. And he notes that they are just as category-defying, both offensive and attractive today. Keller identifies that uh, number one and number two sound by our political uh, markups today as being kind of liberal, that four and five sound conservative, three sounds like nobody. So one and two, you know, uh, ethnic diversity and care for the poor. Okay, that's, you know, that's the, that's the, you know, Californians. That's those people. They're into that stuff. And then number four, uh, the dignity and worth of all people and a sex ethic. Oh, that's the conservative. That's like, you know, the flyover states. You guys go back and take that with you. And the three, love for enemies is something that neither political party in our world today operates with at all. And so what, man, what am I at? Okay, here's what's so profound about these things. is So we have a political system that wants to divide these up, but doesn't have a basis really rooted in any of them other than just because. Or they root them in some kind of, most often about some kind of rights system that we have as opposed to the self-giving love of others, which is the ethic of Christianity. But what's profound is all six of these things have some precedent in some political party and, and system of today. And what we don't realize is that regardless of if you're progressive or you're conservative, but you're not identified as a Christian, that this is the house that Christianity built. Tom Holland is a historian, not Spider-Man. <laughs> He's a fantastic historian who studies uh, first the, the, the Roman world, and uh, he wrote this article a couple years ago. He's an agnostic, still an agnostic, but he, had, he wrote this, this uh, article called what, uh, he's, what I Got Wrong About, about Christianity or, or What I Got Wrong About Rome. And what he said is in all of his studies of the Roman world, what he has realized is the Roman world felt so alien to him, and he realized, here I am as not a Christian, and I am thoroughly Christian in my ethics. Other than some proclamation of the resurrection and belief in Jesus, my, my system of ethics is shaped by, I live in the house of, the, of Christendom, of a Christian worldview. So even though I might not agree with, you know, uh, monogamy or even, you know, um, uh, differing sex partners within marriage, I still have a high value of consent. Even though I might not go to the limit of, of conversations about infanticide or abortion or what that means for the unborn, I still have a really high view that every single human, depending on how we categorize that though, still has dignity and worth that does not come from the state, but is given by the fact that they're very human. So even if you are on the far, you are living in the house that Christendom built. You, you historically have no basis for that. And so what Tom Holland argues, aside from the fact that he's not Spider-Man, is... <laughs> The, the, the house that we live in, the culture that we live in is, is we are, I'm trying to think of an example of this. We are like these little like angsty teenagers living in this house, wearing the clothes, like slamming the door all within the home that our parents made for us. I hate you. You suck. And we're closing the door and we're screaming at our parents and we throw ourselves down on the bed that they bought, the pillow that they bought, screaming, not realizing that our whole freak out is all within everything that has been built by Christianity. 
And what is happening then is we're, as we're trying to now build some kind of kingdom apart from a Christian worldview, is it's, it's leading to this kind of, it's falling apart. And it actually loses any grounding, which then leads to hypocrisy within the statements that happen here. Which you'll find within any political system is, is all of this, you guys, are, you're contradicting each other. This is outside of my notes. I spent four minutes on it, so it's okay. I'm going to keep going. Here's the whole point. Uh, because of that split that Holland identified is that we as Christians in this moment feel pressured to jettison some, if not all of these. But because we still live in the house that Christianity built, that Christendom built, we have a pressure to maybe take a couple of these but leave off the rest. So if, if you live within California, and, and like most of us, you, you, know, you lean a little more progressive, then what this is, is you, you feel a propensity, a pull towards one and two at the exclusion of four and five. If, if, if you live, you know, uh, in, in North Carolina or Missouri, where I'm from, or, you know, you're from, then you have this cultural pressure that hits you to take on four and five, but exclude one and two. And in so doing, because as you exclude the other one, then you lose three of that love for the person on the other side. Like this, I just, this is the whole cultural moment that we're in right now, is the breakdown of these six as opposed to having a unified vision that holds them all together. And so in the pressure to jettison these, we need to regain a holding on to all of these so we don't lose the sixth, which is what made the church actually be on the right side of history, that they were resilient. They held on to these things amid their world. We're getting a little lecture, a little history talk here today, but this is the framework for everything where we're going. We need to look back to look forward. If you want to find a thriving faith, we have throughout history and even in the global church right now, these six things continue to be a unified set. And I believe most of the falling apart of the church is we don't have an ethic, a way of existing within the city that is consistent. But we are prone to pick one of the two of these things. And so we either look just like the culture and we don't have anything to offer, or we, we, we are so secluded and offset that we aren't even talked to. Where did these six come from, though, is the big question. What guided the early church to grab onto these? Was there a, a you know, upstart you know, marketing team out of you know, you know, Galatia that the early church gathered? We really want to reach the Roman world. And they're like, okay, we're going to sit in there like a, you know, or there was like this you know, apostolic like, retreat, you know, some like, really nice like, lake house with a dry erase board. And they're like, okay, you know, Athanasius, what do you think? He's like, I think you know, dignity of life, that's good. You know? like, what? Where did these come from? These were not a programmatic, but they blossomed and bloomed as the early church looked back to look forward. The peculiar people of God discerned how to live within their world by looking back at the resurrection of Jesus Christ and then bringing what that means out into the Roman world. So as they bumped up against exposure practices or the sexual ethic of their day or the divided ethnicities and social classes, that it was the resurrection of Jesus that they began to bring all those things to and then walk a life back out of in connection to. This is what, over this series, we're going to be calling the ethics of Easter. For the early church, they understood the resurrection had an ethic. It had a discernible way that we live our lives that was grounded in the Great Commission. Forty days after his resurrection, before his ascension to the Father, Jesus gathers up with his disciples and he tells them this. You'll see the Great Commission behind me here. Jesus says... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he says the part that most of you know. Go, therefore, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. 
But the line that we miss, the great omission in our reading of the Great Commission is those two words, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The authority that Jesus possesses, that the resurrection has now doled out through Jesus and is coming in this world, has implications on earth. That Jesus is already ruling this world. That does not mean, hear me, that everything on this world is as Jesus intends, but it means that God in Christ has begun to take the world under his rule of self-giving love. And he does this through his disciples, which is why that's immediately connected to what? All authority on earth. Let's just take out the in heaven stuff and let's just think in terms of a king, right? Before his people. And he says, all authority, I have all authority. And then what does he do? What would you normally expect out of this? So every, he, he gives his authority to his, his disciples. All authority has been given to me. Go, therefore, out into the nations, making disciples, baptize, teach them. The way that the rule and authority of Jesus that's here on earth is brought out is through his people. And so this, this framework then is far more about what we talked about last week, people getting converted and baptized just so they can go to heaven when they die. This is about people coming under the loving, self-giving rule of King Jesus, both here and now and, yes, into the future. And so this is the task for the church today, is not us biting by and, and wringing our hands together as we see culture going downward and, oh, it's becoming increasingly post-Christian. What are we going to do? For us, we look at, we go, no, all authority in, on earth belongs to Jesus here and now. And that means like means something for our world. As N.T. Wright puts it in Surprised by Hope, he says, our task in the present, he's talking to the church today, our task in the present is to live as resurrection people in between Easter and the final day with our Christian life, corporate and individual, in both worship and mission as a sign of the first and a foretaste of the second. What would you say is the task of the church today? If you identify as a Christian, what would you say is the fundamental task of your life? The resurrection means the new creation is dawning, that matter matters, that God is adopting and making children, son and daughters, out of prodigal children throughout this world. There is a work that God is doing here and now. And so last week with Easter, when I talked about the dangers of spiritualizing or heavenizing the resurrection, this is what I'm getting at here. When you make the resurrection being about going somewhere other than here and sometime other than now, you short circuit the entire system of what the resurrection is meant to bring about, new creation dawning. So the early church, they thrived because they understood that the resurrection means something for here and now. And as they lived as though the resurrection were true because it was, the church found a resurrection power at work within them. And this is where I, I, there's all sorts of reasons that we can talk about, about the decline of, you know, American churches or whatever. I think the fundamental, one of the fundamental problems is we've, we've radically heavenized the whole mission and statement of what the church is about to do. Or on the other side is that we've lost the tension of heaven and earth and we've made like a social justice only vision of the church. 
where we either go, Jesus, where we're prone to either, man, this isn't notes, but this is so true. The, uh, I'm putting this together for the first time, is we are prone to want to take Jesus' statement that all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me, and we take one or the other. We either say Jesus' authority is exclusively on earth, and he's a good teacher with social, social calling for us to lean into and works of justice to do, or we are prone to go only to heaven and go, so come on along, the road, the, you know, we're going to wait while the world goes to hell, and Jesus is going to whip, whip us off to heaven land. And the, the resurrection means all authority in heaven and earth earth belongs to him. So you cannot have a faithful understanding of the resurrection that doesn't lean into the new creation that's dawning, but that also doesn't have implications for the justice issues in your midst right here and right now. And you need both of those. And so what, that's, what the early church tapped into was they were living with such a way, they thrived because they lived in such a way, that as their neighbors saw that, it could only be explained by the resurrection. The question that's been stuck with me all week is, does my life, do the rhythms and practices and the habits of my life garner people to ask questions that can only be answered by the resurrection? With the exception of maybe what I do on Sundays or maybe, you know, for me, what I do for work. Do, does, does my life, going back to, does my sexual ethic, the way that I relate to people other than me, the way that I, I see the dignity and care of others around me, the way that I treat my enemies, does the, my resilient hope, does my life resemble in such a way that can only be explained by the resurrection? You see, amid our fears of being on the wrong side of history, the resurrection becomes the basis for the resilient hope, but it also becomes the thing that empowers the church in the midst of whatever they're going through, the belief that history belongs to Jesus. And so the ethics of Easter emerged out of this resurrection renewal that happened within the lives of these people. As Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, I love Romans chapter 12. Just memorize Romans chapter 12, everyone, and we'll be, we'll be great. Um, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern, y'all may discern, plural, the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That this is the, the, what Paul calls the other church into, is a renewal of your mind. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but renew your mind in light of everything that he's talked about up to that point in Romans, which is largely about the, the, the unifying work of the resurrection of Jesus. Renewing your mind around the resurrection, changing your mind to now think matter matters, the new creation is dawning, that God is adopting humanity back to himself as Father and as God. In, that, this is the work of what the early church did. As they gathered, as they committed, as they walked out into their lives, was what would it look like for us to see our world with these resurrection, new creation lenses on and then to operate and live our lives as, as such. And, and the whole point of what my hope is in this series is to, to get that framework on our eyes as well. To move away from, again, the all authority simply being on heaven or simply on earth, but unifying and bringing these things together so that we can actually bring something and find thriving faith in the midst of this. See, thriving faith is not found in, in, in you doing Sabbath more or you getting silence and solitude more. It's, I, those things are important, but for the early Christians, they understood that the rhythms of spiritual health were for the sake of mission and not simply so that you felt better about yourself. If there's a great danger before us with all the conversations about silence and solitude and sabbatical and Sabbath and rest and, and, and taking that community and all those things, those were always ways of refilling the tank so the engine could keep driving in mission. They're not about self-help. They were a way of ensuring that you could bring sustainable help to your world. 
And, and we have to recapture some of this stuff because the, the church just continues to become so insular, which is why I think it's declining. So last series before this, just to kind of connect some dots as we round the corner here. In Ecclesiastes, in the series Smoke and Mirrors, that was largely dealing with the first part of Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. That's what Ecclesiastes was all about, identifying the pattern of this world. This series is now moving into, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. If there's a unifying link between these two, it's Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Is that We just spent nine weeks with lead up to Easter understanding what, the, what is the pattern of this world that's shaping and selling us. And now we're moving into what does it mean for us as the church to transform our minds, to live within this resurrection power. And so in the coming weeks, like we talked about a moment ago, those six practices that we just detailed are going to be what we're going to spend a week on each one. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at each of those six. We're going to look at how that was actually practiced within church history. We're going to, I'm going to read old, really old letters and things that like we're going to geek out a little bit, looking at how our earliest kind of ancestors in the faith, how they actively lived these things out. We're then going to connect it to the, the theology of the resurrection to show how those two things were connected. And then to go, what does that resurrection theology mean within our day and age within our modern mission right here and right now as we accomplish and do this within community. And so this week, before we really get into that, to, this week is what I wanna do is I just wanna get us moving into this kind of Easter state of mind, that all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Jesus, that Jesus is the reigning king over all creation and his resurrection power is at work in you and I. I just wanna get us into a habit where we're thinking that way at least. And so to do that, my little practice for this week that I, w- I would love to see continue, but just to try out for this week, is uh, to, s- to start praying the Lord's Prayer on a daily basis. The early Christians, I don't think it was a surprise, they prayed it three times a day. We're just, I'm just one. That's all I'm giving you, all right? If you want to be a superhero, go for it, but let's start with one. And the Lord's Prayer is so profound. It's in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, and Jesus' prayer, Father in heaven, also called the Our Father. But right in the middle of it, there's the, the line, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then you give us this day our daily bread and you move on. But right there in the middle of the prayer is this kind of Easter state of mind, this resurrection renewal, this way of viewing reality that says that on earth as it is in heaven, that that is what resurrection is all about. What God is committed to is his world, new creation dawning. And by simply praying that on a daily basis, we not only remind ourselves that that's the work that God's up to, we ask him to do that work out in our work, in our home, in our classrooms, and, and wherever we're at during the day, but we also get our imagination stewed up to actually look for opportunities to do that. And so I don't know about you, Right now, my life is an absolute entire mess, and moving from surviving to thriving sounds awesome. And most often, I think the framework that we need that I found is the most helpful thing for me is can I, how do I find new creation blooming in the midst of the insanity of my life? And that is what actually allows me to have a patience and a quiet and a simplicity, a non-anxious presence in the midst of it all, is to see new creation actually at work there. And so we're going to begin that. Uh, the Lord's Prayer in more details is on the series page if, if you want to look to that. But as we close, there was one last chief, the big practice that really upset the, you know, that was peculiar to, to, to the ancient Romans. 
And it was the fact that on a weekly basis, these, this early church, like I said a moment ago, of slave and free, of Jew and Gentile, barbarian, Scythian, of, of child and parents, people from all different classes, that they would gather together in a home and they would break bread and they would drink wine together as they proclaimed the resurrection, the death and life of Jesus Christ. And it was astounding. They referred to it as their love feast which because it was them dining on and reflecting on the love of God. And that love feast led to a lot of really, you know, pagan Christians that hadn't been to one, not knowing what's going on there. And so there's weird things about, and the fact that they all call each other brother and sister. So there's, this, there's a lot of weird, like, they're like, what is this weird thing that these Christians are getting together and doing? And so as they began to come and they would see that what, the, what was happening here is these Christians were gathering together, identifying themselves as the peculiar, the particular special people of God from all of these mess. And there wasn't any higher chair or lower chair, but they were intermixed and intermingled from all walks of life and all different backgrounds here together, dining and proclaiming the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that that was what unified them as this new people. It was astounding to them. Because not only was it unifying this people from all different walks of life in a way that, that nothing else in the Roman world did, but the fact that at the very center of it was, as Paul writes in uh, Galatians, that here we have this proclamation in the broken bread and the cup, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. As you survey the ancient reading, you know, writings of the, the Roman pantheon and the gods of the Roman day, the, the Roman gods didn't love humans. The only exception being when they would kind of take on, you know, pretend to be a human so, you know, a male deity could come down and, you know, mess around with, with some girl. That was the one, like, you know, any connection at all. But here you have at the center of the Christian table is this fact that God loves this people with this actually deep familial father love. And even more than that, that the gods not only didn't love humanity, they would never sacrifice for them. The idea was that humanity sacrificed for the gods, so if you just imagine you're, you know, an ancient Roman and you walk, you know, you get invited to this, this dinner, you know, and so some guy gets up like this weird guy like me and he starts talking about Jesus and the Bible. And in the middle, everybody stands and they gather together and they eat the bread and they drink the cup and they proclaim that, that the son of God, that Jesus loved me and died, that he gave himself for me. This was the astounding nature of, for, the, for most people. As they came here and they saw at the table this church of diverse people gathering together, eating and drinking, proclaiming the Lord's death, that this is something that, we did, that, that the Roman world couldn't get their minds around. It's what led to people receiving gladly the peculiar title by their neighbors as they lived out the rule and reign of Jesus because they found something that they couldn't find anywhere else. And though we may live in the absence of the Roman pantheon with gods that have names on them and we very, you know, call them religious, we absolutely, in our day and age, still live with some kind of deity within our life, some kind of thing that we sacrifice to, we look for purpose from, we, we, we set our attention on. All of these things that don't actually love us, all of these things that don't actually sacrifice themselves for us. And here at the table, when the Christians, when we gather every single week, when we come to the table, we see at the center point of the Christian faith is the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And that he is committed to this world, he's committed to me, he's committed to our community that he's building, and he is at work in it all. And so what we're going to do in just a moment is we're going to come to the table, we're going to eat, and we're going to sing as we proclaim the Lord's death that this is the sort of God who's at work within the world. This is the sort of king who has all authority in heaven and on earth. How, how, how do you get authority in your life? How does this world function with authority? Not through self-giving love, but through seizing and taking. And we remind ourselves each week that the way that authority of the kingdom is brought about in this world is through dying to ourselves as our king died for us. Let's pray.